Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Um, I want to let you know a couple of things also that we're going to do today. If you're new to our community, we're pretty interactive. So if you have babies, we love babies, and we love all the noises babies make. So don't ever feel like you have to leave if uh, your child is being a little rowdy. Hallelujah, it'll wake the rest of us up. Secondly, we very much encourage uh, questions. So there's a text line if anything strikes you that you want to talk about more, or we'll do Q&A kind of at the end of this block of material that I will be presenting. And then what we do is that we create an environment where people can respond uh, however they wish to. We, we sing for about 15 minutes, and then we have stations kind of in the front and in the back of the room. And one of the things you can do at those stations, you can get up and move around. One of the things you can do at those stations is write down prayer requests that we actually pray for every week. And the prayer requests are pretty honest. And this is one we got this week, which I thought was awesome. Go ahead and fire that up if you would. What is the point of these prayer requests? <laughs> Aren't we actually the outsiders? And that's a reference from the passage we looked at last week where Jesus tells a parable. We always thought it was describing all the Christians as the good soil and all the non-Christians as the bad soil. That's not what it was about. It was about how the disciples gradually miss more and more of what Jesus is doing as the story goes on. Aren't we actually the outsiders? And if we think we are the insiders, why would we assume we get all these privileges that maybe others don't? And, and whoever this is has such a good point, right? We're the most blessed people on the planet in history, and all we ask for is more blessing. Great point. Why would God be setting aside or providing all these things for us that make our life better or easier? Isn't our calling to serve or to have less and to sacrifice for the oppressed? Why should I be asking to get a job promotion or a raise or healing or some kind of special treatment? What is this all, what is all this about the favor of God? I'm a Christian, so I got the front row parking space at the mall. So why even pray at all? Why ask for things? If God is so good and perfect, won't he just give us what we need? And should we be looking to serve, not get? I don't get this genie in a bottle that is supposed to make our lives good and save us from pain and heartache. Are there reasons for their prayer requests? Why do we do this? I love it. That was one piece of paper. Very small writing. So whoever wrote this genius with the font, genius. And I believe that the pen was purple. Um, which makes it even better. Now, what a great set of questions. Would you agree? And whoever this is, is on to something when, when very often for us, at least for me, not talking about you, prayer is nothing more than an exercise in my wanting more middle-class security, comfort, and convenience and baptizing that in Jesus' name instead of really seeing God move among the marginalized and the oppressed. Great points. And every now and again, we'll get requests like that, and we pray for them just like everybody else. But the vast majority of the prayer requests we get are nothing like that. We had several this week that just concerned mental illness and people who are fighting to see their lives as worth living. We have people who are asking for help with their marriages and kids 
We have people who are in the middle of such incredible grief over things that have happened that are incredibly painful and disappointing. And so the reason we do the prayer requests, I mean, what would you say? Well, how would you answer that question if somebody said that to you? Just shout it out. What? Did you say ask Mike? You are a really profound person? I don't know. <laughs> Definitely do not. And I say, yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, you're turning something over to God. There's power in surrender. Absolutely. What else? What would you say? Partnering with other people. Yeah, it's a very communal thing. Isaac, get up here. Okay, this is my friend Isaac. He and I normally sit together every nine o'clock service. For some reason, he came at 11 today. You are totally throwing me off. Isaac makes sure, A, I don't rock during the worship time when I'm sitting there praying. B, that I stand when directed to stand. And C, we always take communion together, correct? Yes. Did you want to say something to everybody? I do, I do my, I, I, I say Yep. I say you. I in, I in, I in grade. My friend, I You're in 11th grade? Yes, I am. Nice, nice. I got that. Awesome. This is Isaac. Way to go, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for saying hi. I thought he had a question or a statement. So great job. You did have a statement. Well done. What else would you say? We're not even... Ooh, the courage just to step out and put it out there is important. That's really good. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, you're quoting the Bible now? Yes. Oh, now we're cooking. I can't summarize any of this, but this is so good. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, if you look at Paul's prayers to the churches and about the churches, there is very little resemblance between me asking for things and what he ends up praying for. Totally. So I would say, I would say there's a bunch of reasons why. One of them is that we're experiencing it right now. We participate together. This Praying for each other is one of the very few communal things that we do. I mean, one of the central roles of the church is to grieve with those who grieve, to celebrate with those who celebrate, to carry each other's burdens. And though we may look super handsome and beautiful, there's just a whole heck of a lot of pain sitting in this room. Secondly, we believe prayer actually does things in the world and that the gospels are littered with people asking Jesus. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he doesn't say yes. Part of our growing into Jesus' likeness is learning to orient our desires towards the things that Jesus wants and not what I want. And like little kids, right? Little kids start and the only power they have in the world is requesting. Can I have this, 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 this? And then they grow up into agency and they learn not everything they want is what's good for them. So prayer does that too. But one of the biggest reasons why we do prayer requests is so that people see each other's pain. Like one of the things about grief is it has to be noticed, right? When I, when I lost my dad, one of the things that was just so weird is everyone carried on like nothing had changed. But the people who actually saw, they didn't have to join me in grief, but they just knew I was grieving. That mattered. 
And so it's one of the ways we lament together is just sitting in the fact that, man, the cliches that we throw around in church don't often do much. And we sit in the reality of disappointment and desire and grief and lament and joy. And all of that's welcome. Even our immaturity is welcome. So that's, I would say, one of the reasons we do that. I'm just so delighted whoever wrote that, wrote that. That's so great. Anyway, uh, what we're going to do today, that was all just preamble. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at a bunch of texts from the book of Mark. And if you remember last week, um, I know everyone just kind of rewatches the the teachings um, every day. Just they're so... Um, but if you remember, we looked at a parable uh, where Jesus talks about insiders to the kingdom perceiving and hearing and seeing rightly and outsiders who miss it. And then the irony is that the disciples who were insiders in chapter four become outsiders by chapter eight and they're missing everything Jesus is up to. And all these people that we think are outsiders are the ones actually getting it. And they show themselves to be insiders. And the natural question that we're supposed to be asking is instead of sitting here thinking, oh yeah, of course I'm an insider, here I am. For those of us who are really kind of secure in our self-righteous motives, we are to be people who say, ah, here are all these people falling on their face in front of Jesus. The disciples never do that. Have I lost something along the way? Now, what we're gonna do today is painful. And if you're like, I come here regularly and it is painful and I still come back, that says something about you. If you wandered in here not knowing this was gonna be painful, there are loads of other great churches in the, in the, I mean, in the community. Anyway, we're gonna look, people read the gospels as if they're a bunch of like isolated, cute Sunday school stories about Jesus. And there's no rhyme or reason about how they fit together. So we've been looking not at the individual stories, but how the individual stories fit into the points that Mark is making. So we're gonna look at a bunch of individual stories We're gonna draw a whole bunch of themes out of those stories, and then we'll kind of land the plane at the end, all right? So we have a whole lot of text to get through, and I'll be drawing your attention to things along the way. And uh, giddy up, Feel, feel okay? Okay, three of us are in, the rest of us are stuck. Here we go. Mark chapter four, verse one. This began the conversation we started last week. Again, Jesus began to teach by the what? Now, if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, it is not in any way, shape, or form a sea. It is utterly a lake. You can see across it. You can see it from side to side. Like, it is very much a lake. But it's called the sea for a very specific reason. The Greek word here is sea. It's not lake. And in the ancient imagination, the sea was the place where chaos and demonic power resided was also called the abyss, and it was the place where evil dwelt. So what needs to be tamed? What's the first thing that needs to be tamed in Genesis 1? The Spirit of God hovers over water. That's the chaos the Spirit of God organizes. In Genesis 6, when God decides he's going to restart humanity through Noah, what's he use? Water. When he wants to teach Jonah about loving people who aren't like him, what's he use? fish that are in the water. Exactly. 
So water became associated, and if, that there are certain portions of Job and the Psalms that talk about great sea monsters that dwell in the deep. And so there's this whole water thing that's going on. We're going to read today about two crossings of water, and I want you to understand that the, the sea is a character in the book of Mark. It's not just a setting. So when it says that Jesus began to teach by the sea, and then notice the next verse, the crowd gathered around him. It was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake. Now the Greek reads literally, he sat on the sea and taught them. Now, if you have your Old Testament ears on, this, there's something about Psalms and Job where God sits enthroned over the waters. That would have been a callback here. That this just isn't random, Jesus sitting on the sea, and you're like, oh, you're making that up. Nope, just wait till all the Yahweh references get applied to Jesus about the water. All right, this is just the first one. So Jesus begins to teach them at the end of chapter 4. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to what? Okay, now look at me, look at me, look at me. In English, it just sounds like the other side of the lake. It's not the other side of the lake. There is, we're gonna spend 10 minutes on the other side, all right? Because the other side matters. Maps, fire them up. All right, that is Israel in the time of Jesus. The very top, uh, is a place called Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? But going down from there, the next red dot is the city of Capernaum, really a village. And there was, there was a whole, on that side of the Sea of Galilee, the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, there was a whole bunch of small fishing villages uh, populated by people who referred to that region as the land of the twelve. Right? The land of the twelve. Now, anytime you hear the word twelve, what are you thinking of? 12 tribes. So they saw themselves as the pure remnants of the 12 tribes. The Jews that were south near Jerusalem were corrupt. The temple complex and the politics were corrupt. So they referred to themselves in that area as the land of the 12. So where Jesus does most of his ministry is on the northwest part of that lake. Now notice the lightly colored area across the lake from it. You see that place? It's called the Decapolis. You see that? Deca is 10, polis is city. So they call this place the 10 cities. And that place, again, just stick with me. There's such a payoff. Just trust, trust, trust. <laughs> that place was called First of all, she looks fantastic, so don't cover that up. But secondly, it is not cold in here. Do you see this? She's a very nice lady, I know, I know. I know, I was in the middle, maybe of the most important point. Isaac's yelling at me to focus right now. Okay, okay. And if Isaac's yelling at me to focus, then you know we're off the rails. All right. So the Decapolis, it's that lightly colored area, the land of the seven. Now it was called the land of the seven. Hold on. Justina, this is what you've done. The Decapolis was called the 10 cities. 
the nickname for that region by the Jews was called the Land of the Seven. And the Land of the Seven is a reference to Deuteronomy 7, where Joshua drives out seven tribes or seven nations before the armies of God, and this is where they settle, in the Decapolis. So the Greek name was the Decapolis, 10 cities. And there were 10, sometimes more, sometimes less. In Deuteronomy 7, this is the passage I was just referring to, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, Israel, that you are entering to possess, and drives out before you many nations, and this turns out to be a seven-nation army, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Mosquitoites, seven nations larger, larger and stronger than you. So the Jews thought that they, the Galileans thought they were, they were the remnants of the 12 tribes, the land of the 12, and this 10 city, like nation state over here, they called it the land of the seven because that's where the descendants of the seven nations went. Does that make sense? All right, now this is gonna be relevant in just a second. Now, one of the things that, that was true of the Decapolis is it was incredibly, incredibly cosmopolitan and very, very pagan. The rabbis did not allow good Jewish uh, boys and girls over there, not even remotely. It was very dark, lots of immorality. One of the gods that was central to the worship uh, of the 10 city region was called Dionysus. Let's show him off right here. Here he is. Dionysus, next, next picture as well. Among many things, Dionysus created wine. So as you can imagine, he was very popular in the very pagan part of that section. Uh, Dionysus, evidently, the, the legend goes that a farmer, they only had water on the earth. A farmer offered him a drink of water uh, when he was in need, and he responded by turning that water into wine. And thus wine came into the world. Um, there were miracles associated with him. One of those miracles was that whole vines and vineyards would appear during the day. Like they, you, there would be nothing in the soil in the morning and you'd be eating very plump grapes at night. Another miracle, and this is attested to by some historians from that time, they would uh, take big ceremonial jars that had nothing in them. They would seal them up, put them in the, his temple, in the Decapolis, seal up the temple, and then the next day they would unseal the temple, unseal the jars, and wine was in there. So he turned water into wine, he turned nothing into wine. Whenever wine was present, you were in the presence of this God. The other thing you need to know about the worship of this God is that the, the, the adherents, the celebrants, would celebrate a ritual meal that consisted of pork. So there were pigs all being raised specifically for the worship of this God. Are you with me so far? Okay, hallelujah. That was half of a page of eight that we have to get through. Now, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Where's the other side? The Decapolis, the land of the seven. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as uh, he was in the boat. There were other boats with him. A furious storm came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it, nearly, it was nearly swamped. Jesus was sleeping on a cushion. Now this is all Jonah. 
All of these words are Jonah words and come from Jonah chapter one. This whole story is about Jonah and like a retread of the story. Jesus was at the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? That word drown is from Jonah one. He got up. He rebuked the wind and the waves. Quiet, he said, be still. Now, in the Old Testament, who is the only one that can command water? Yeah, Yahweh, right? Genesis 2, Spirit of God hovering over the waters, and then he speaks, and the waters obey. So when Jesus yells at a storm and subdues waters, what's he doing? He's doing the, he's doing the kind of thing only Yahweh does, all right? And notice, the wind died down. Again, that's from Jonah 1, and the sea was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so what? Afraid. Now, afraid is going to be a huge theme we're going to explore here. Why are you so afraid, guys? Do you still have no faith? In other words, they'd been with Jesus long enough. They should have known Jesus could handle this. Instead, they were what? And they asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So, Anytime Jesus crosses over to the other side, there's some sort of water thing that happens, right? So this is the first of two crossings. Chapter five, verse one, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. They're in the Decapolis now. When Jesus got out of a boat, a man with an impure spirit came from where? The tombs. So three times, Mark is gonna tell us he lived among the tombs. This guy is so radioactive, un, radioactively unclean. He's the most unclean person we meet in all of the Gospels. He has an impure spirit, lived among the tombs. He lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. He was, no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones, driven to madness. When he saw Jesus, again, a verb of perception, from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees. The disciples never do this. Loads of other characters do. This man shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. In Matthew, they ask, don't send us into the abyss. For Jesus had said to them, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Jesus asked him, what is your name, impure spirit? My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out, into, or out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding nearby. Huh. What were the pigs doing there? I mean, we don't know exactly, but a large herd seems like it would have been associated with the, the worship of this God who turns water into wine, interestingly enough. And here comes some other dude who turns water into wine. That's just interesting. A large herd of pigs was on uh, the hillside nearby. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the what? The sea, the abyss. Don't send us into the abyss. Fine, I'll send you into the pigs and they'll take you to the abyss. And they were drowned. Now, if you're Jewish and you're hearing this story, what Jesus has done, no one could subdue this man. Jesus subdues him. He doesn't run away from the man's madness. He runs toward it. Not at all afraid of this guy. 
but he cleanses the whole region. It's not just the man, but it was the presence of even the unclean animals he cleanses. Now, there's a very strange reaction. That was page one of the city. Oh, that was two, actually. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported in the town what happened, and people came out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw a man who had been possessed sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were what? Terrified. Why? Because this dude had just declared war on the local religious economy, right? Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and about the pigs. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus, now this is so odd, Jesus did not let him go home instead to your own people and tell them what? Tell them. Now, up until this point, every time Jesus does a big miracle, he says, don't tell anyone. This is the first time some sort of pterodactyl just flew through the light. <laughs> this is the first time Jesus says, go tell everybody. And we'll see why that's relevant in a little bit. So the man went away, began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done, and all the people were amazed. Now, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, so now he's on the land of the 12 side, the Jewish side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Moving the story forward into chapter 6, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they'd done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and let's get some rest. They went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw, again, a verb of perception, a large crowd, he had what on them? Compassion. And the word compassion here isn't a warm feeling. It's like this gut word that has to do with an explosion of affection and care. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, Sheep without a shepherd, that comes from Numbers 27, where Moses is being disciplined by God. He raises, God raises up Joshua, so the people are not with sheep without a shepherd. In Ezekiel, I don't remember, I think it's 36 or 37, where uh, God uh, like castigates the religious leadership. You have left my people like sheep without a shepherd. Like what, what, what Jesus is saying is that the Jewish leadership has abandoned these people in the same way that that happened in the Old Testament. So he began teaching them many things. He has compassion. Now notice the compassion of Jesus set against the disciples. By this time it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, and it's already very late. Send the people away and let them buy themselves something to eat. Would you say that is compassionate? Well, not, not nearly as much as Jesus, would you agree? Jesus' compassion began to teach them. The disciples are like, dude, we're in the middle of nowhere. Send them away. Jesus answered, nah, why don't you give them something to eat? The disciples do not want to serve these people, but Jesus is going to make them do it anyway. It's awesome. You give them something to eat. And then they respond all snarky. 
that would take more than a year and a half's wages. Are we to go and spend that much bread and give it to them to eat? Now, again, Sunday school stuff, I know, but just wait till what's coming. It didn't better be good because I've built it up at this time. It better be good. Note to self, make the end good. Okay. At this point, the disciples are still operating by all the principles that govern the regular world, right? How are we going to feed these people? We don't have enough money. But Jesus is like, okay, well, there's something else going on. So how many loaves do you guys have? Go and see. So again, they're active participants. When they found out, they said, five, and we have two fish. Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. That's a Psalm 23, Lord is my shepherd reference. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking five loaves and two fish, looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples. The disciples then feed the people. They didn't want to, but now they're going to. He divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up how many basketfuls? How many? Where are they? In the land of the 12. Coincidence? Hmm, we'll see. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Now, we're like, cool, Jesus does a cool feeding miracle. Here comes another water crossing because we're going to the other side. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat. He made them to go ahead of, him, ahead of him into Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Again, every time they want to cross the lake, the sea acts up. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the sea. Okay, who does that? Only Yahweh. Now he was about to pass by them. Now look at me. Some of you are just insufferably bored. I understand completely, but just this is such a good little nugget here. I know, Isaac, I love you. Pass by. It sounds like Jesus was like, you guys go ahead and keep rowing. I'll see you on the other side. I'm taking a shortcut, right? This is what I do to the slow traffic on 96. I pass by them. Um, but pass by here is another Old Testament image. When Moses wants to see the glory of God in the Old Testament, what does God do in response? The text says he passes by. Same thing with Elijah. To pass by in Old Testament language means to reveal your glory. So Jesus is intending to reveal his glory by walking on the sea. Okay? But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they saw him and were what? They were terrified. So again, Jesus is intending to inspire them to worship on obedience, and instead, they're just afraid. Immediately, Jesus said, take courage, it is I. And it is I is the shortened Greek version of the Exodus 3 name of God. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them. The wind died down. They were completely amazed because they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Huh. I guess so the bread wasn't about the bread. The bread was about something else. Would you agree? Now, how are you guys doing? Let me see you. Let me see. Okay. I'm bored. So I met, no. There's so much good stuff in here. What are we trying to show? We're trying to show that these aren't random stories, but they're arranged to make a really profound point. 
And we're getting to that point in 10 minutes. Verse 53. When they had crossed over, and now they're in the Decapolis, right? So they, they, they've crossed back and forth twice now. As soon as they got out of a boat, what? People recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Now, Matthew says, and they worshiped the God of Israel instead of the God Dionysus. Now, how did the Decapolis, what happened? Oh, yeah. Young man. Well done. Thank you. I thought when you did this, I was like, I don't have dandruff, so I have no hair. So I didn't know. Is that a chip on my shoulder? Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Jesus, would you cast demons into whatever that thing was? All right. So Jesus goes into the capitalist one time, and he's met by a demon-possessed dude in the tombs. He doesn't go that we know of any other time in the book of Mark, but then he comes back and the whole region knows about him. The only explanation Mark gives us for that is that the dude went and told everybody and everybody came rushing to meet this Jesus. And then notice what happens next. During those days, we're still in the Decapolis, a large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, huh, maybe we've had this conversation before. I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days, have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because of them, they've come a long distance because some of them have come a long distance. Now, if you're the disciples, what should you say here? Well, let's feed them, right? We just did the feeding. Let's just do it again. Jesus, we know you can do this. But what do they say? But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Ah, how many loaves do you have, says Jesus? Seven, awesome. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When they'd taken seven loaves and given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples to, again to distribute among the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks, told the disciples to distribute those. The people ate and were satisfied afterwards. The disciples picked up how many basketfuls? Seven. Where are we? The land of the what? How many did we pick up in the land of the 12? Is that random? No. What's Jesus saying? See, the reason the Jonah story is referenced in that first crossing when Jesus is sleeping and the storm's going on is because Jesus is the anti-Jonah. Jonah didn't want to see Gentiles come to faith in the one true God. But Jesus does, and he demonstrates it through these two feedings. He's come to feed the land of the 12, and he's come to feed the pagan land, the Decapolis, the land of the seven. Are you with me? This is not just random stuff. Now, the disciples, God bless them. Verse 14. They had forgotten to bring bread along with them, except for one loaf. Be careful. Now, Jesus is going to use bread. This has never been about bread, okay? 
So Jesus uses a bread image here. Be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. Now, for those of you non-bakers, myself included, yeast in the Bible stands for something small that infects something large. So evidently, if you want bread to rise, you just put a little bit of yeast in it and it causes the whole loaf to rise. So it stands for something that's impure that gets in and corrupts everything else. So the yeast of the Pharisees, the religious leadership, some of the religious leadership, and Herod, the political leadership, is that they all do business the same way. They take God completely out of the equation and they just operate according to power and promotion and protecting status and so on. Beware the yeast in them. And the implication is Jesus is saying, because I see it in you. Now, the, fair, or the disciples very astutely say, next. They discuss this with one another. Is it because we have no bread that he's telling us this? Again, is this about bread at all? No. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you still talking about bread? Do not see or understand. Now, these verbs come straight from chapter four, where Jesus says, you're the insiders, and the outsiders will misperceive. They will hear and not understand. They will see, but not really perceive what's going on. Now, that set of ideas is applied to the disciples. That's how far they've fallen and how hard their hearts are. Do you still go back? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? They've become the outsiders. Next. Do you still have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? And then notice the point he makes. When I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketballs did you pick up? 12? Yes. Next. And when I broke seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketballs did you pick up? Seven. Again, not random at all. Next. Do you still not understand? Now, someone in the previous service asked a very astute question. The first question that was texted in was, why would Jesus pick these guys? <laughs> Seriously, right? Why not pick all of the people that are responding to Jesus in the right way? And that's such a great, great question. And I don't know exactly Jesus's thought on the matter, but as someone who's hard-hearted and slow to perceive, I am absolutely thrilled because these people do perceive and they do see and they become shepherds of God's people and they fill literally the earth with the knowledge of Jesus of Nazareth. But this is where they started. And for those of us who are just such big screw-ups, my goodness, you, you could not shout louder that that's what a disciple begins to look like, is there. We're selfish, we're egocentric, we want more blessing, just like they did. We want positions of prominence and celebrity, we want financial gain, all the things, that's where we start. And yet Jesus relentlessly and kindly rebukes and also loves us through that into fruitful soil. And hallelujah that he chose those guys because if he chose the, pers the persons that dug a hole through the roof, okay, so I gotta dig a hole? And I'm thrilled because that shows us what real faith looks like. But the point of Mark is to unsettle the Christian community. 
That's the point of the book of Mark. This was written to the church. And all of us who are so assured of our insider status are called into question. Are we compassionate? Or do we wanna send people on their way and let them fend for themselves? Is the American church known for its compassion? Just as a whole? Probably not. Or do we just let people go their own way and fend for themselves? Are there people in the American church who feel like sheep without a shepherd? Mm Mm-hmm. Is shepherding in the American church more about power and prestige and salary and self-promotion than it is about shepherding and compassion? Yeah. So we're not to look at this and go, man, all those dumb disciples and those outsiders that don't believe, how slow are they? This is my story, right? And then the whole theme that runs through here is about fear, seeing Jesus and staying afraid. And you could not use a better picture to describe the state of the American church. Now, when I say the American church, I'm not talking about any of you, I'm talking about me, and I'm talking about the church writ large. The worst things the American church does, it does because it's afraid. Because if we're operating by the normal calculus of the world, where are we gonna have enough money to feed all these people? Right, that's how the world sees it. Jesus introduces a factor that is very often not brought into the equation. Evidently, his kingdom has abundant resources. I don't feel that way. I feel like I have a way of life to protect, values that are under threat. I gotta do this whole like culture war thing just to make sure all of this is protected because I believe it's, we're living in a place of just scarcity and limited goods and I gotta fight for what's mine. And I do that because I'm afraid. All of the worst behavior of Christians is because we're afraid. And Jesus invites us to see his glory and to not be terrified. That doesn't mean we don't name evil, and it doesn't mean we don't fight injustice, it just means that the fundamental orientation we have to the world isn't one of threat. People will say, I'll read this on social media, the gospel is under threat. No, it's not! You cannot threaten the movement of Jesus of Nazareth. And anyone who's tried has ended up taking over, the whole nation's been taken over by Christians and underground churches. We are not a special interest group. We are not a collection of victims. We are not the persecuted minority. We dare believe that death has been conquered. And if we actually really believe that, then yes, we're realistic about evil. And yes, we name it. But ultimately, we should be known as purveyors of hope in the world. Because we actually believe all of the, I was gonna use a cuss word. And I know, thank you, Isaac, I did, I stopped. But I had to let you know that I stopped, which is how righteous I am. Yeah. I know, I know, no more. He said the students at his school say cuss words and they shouldn't do that. But I know, but yeah, Centennial High School. I think we're shocked. There are cuss words. 
I was like, I think you'd be shocked at the, what's said here in other places. But, but you're right, I didn't do it. Your mother says curse words too. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, and revival has swept into the land. Just in case you didn't know who the mom was, she's right there. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm so happy. It's just, this is great. Oh, I didn't even know what I was gonna say. I was ranting. All right. Susie, do we have anything else to talk about? <laughs> What's that? We have questions. Okay, just a, just a couple. Oh, oh, that was so great. You didn't used to cuss before you worked here. What's that? You didn't used to cuss before you came here. Uh, totally, totally. I know, that's very true. Uh, in going back, you we are talking about the disciples in Mark 5. You said they never fell to their knees, but tons of other characters do. Yeah. I feel like there was something more either you want to say or I want you to say about that and about us like not falling like the people that should be falling to their knees right aren't right yeah yeah the idea yes and it's fascinating they so john falls in front of jesus in revelation when jesus shows up in his glory right but but it is it's interesting because there is a noticeable lack of desperation and urgency to the disciples where they don't they rarely adore Jesus for who Jesus is. They're very much interested in what they get out of being with Jesus. And that's shocking because no one does that, you know, today, least of all me. And so, yeah, there is more to say there. And because, because prostrating oneself, um, it, it's very rare. Like when the synagogue leader does that, that's a really big deal. You don't do that unless there, there's some sort of deity like that's, a, that's, a, that's like the a posture of a worship. So to do that in front of Jesus is a really big thing. You bet. It's a great, great point. Hey, Mike, you got one over here. That was really loud, sorry. <laughs> that was really loud. Um, hi, my question was related to what you were talking about in the very, very beginning of the sermon when you were asking the questions of why we pray for like promotions and things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. I guess the question would be like, how do we respond to particular situations in where, um, for example, if I've heard people tell like, oh, I was late running from the house on the way to work and there was a car accident right in front of me, you know, God blessed me and saved me for sure. Yes. And I was in something very similar recently. Yeah. But what about the people in the car? What about oh, the people that got geez. hurt? You know, well, there's like, a light one at noon. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> First of all, you always ask great questions. Oh man. All right. Whatever goodwill we just established, I'm going to lose entirely i um we are very i think we are very mistaken about how god works in the world um there are there are sincere jesus loving brothers and sisters at our church and other places who believe that everything that happens on earth is god's will um which makes it hard for me to understand why jesus asks us to pray god would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven if god's will was already done so I actually think that there, there is 
just stuff that happens because we live in a fallen world and people are evil to each other. So I, at the same time, can say, God, thank you, but I'm not thanking God because he chose that person to get into a wreck and not me. I think that's so, so like when Jesus prays in Gethsemane, he says, Lord, um, take this cup from me, but not what I will, but you will. And Christians say, okay, great. That's how we should pray. The problem is then we assume that whatever does happen was God's will. I think the Bible clearly says there's loads of things that happen on the earth that are not God's will. But God, God did this so that human persons, his image bearers might be entrusted in the working out of his administration of the earth. So I, I always think it's appropriate to be thankful if you're in the wreck and survive or you're not in the wreck. But I don't go the extra step of saying, God, you know, thank you that you spared me from that because here's this poor other person. I've had people stand up in church and say, hey, God healed us. And, and then all the people who've been crying out for healing just said, well, what's wrong with me, right? So we just have to be super careful how we employ that language. I don't know why God heals some and not others. I don't have the foggiest clue, but I know what the wrong answers are, right? The wrong answers are, well, they just didn't have enough faith or there must be sin in their life or, oh yeah, this must be God's will. No, I don't think that's true. I don't know why he does some and others. I know we're, we're just invited to ask over and over and over. And I do, personally, I do pray for the safety of my children, absolutely, and his protection. And when I drive by a wreck, I'm praying for whoever that is. So anytime prayer takes me above other people, I'm just praying wrong, right? Thank you. That's such a great question. And I know there's so much more to say, man. I mean, this could take, we could spend hours on this. All right, do you wanna do one more? Nope, <coughs> excuse me, okay. I, I have an online one. Oh yeah, can. yeah, if you're okay, it's 1202. Um, this is a really great question. Um, I've heard this story hundreds of times and was never taught about the 12 and the seven baskets gathered, just the miracle of God providing. Why would most of the churches I've attended over my years stop at the miracle and not the meaning? <laughs> That's a great point. I know, Isaac. Thank you. No, 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 no. Don't, don't say anything about me. Don't say anything about me. No, no, no. I love you. You can praise me in private. I will be very glad. No, honey, that's so nice. I know, but no one can hear it. And it's, uh, this is it. Listen. Babe, babe, look at me. Are you upset at me, the way I handle that? Okay. I don't want you to be upset. I just don't. I, so here's, here's, here's one of the things I think is true. We have such an impoverished view of salvation that it's for when we die and it's a transaction that happens in heaven. And the whole frame of evangelical thought is around avoiding hell and getting to heaven. And that is such, of such little concern to the New Testament that you have to begin, see, you have to see the New Testament as something else. And so we'll make it about, well, it shows us the need for Jesus. That's because we can't live all these commands. It shows us the need for Jesus. And I've heard people say this. So I think when you start at the wrong spot, you get, you very much end up in places where you shouldn't end up. And I think when we start out from the Bible is uh, a book that's meant 
first of all, to mean something to me. It was written to me and for me. And it's for my individual salvation and individual edification so that I go to heaven when I die. When you approach the Bible that way, you get certain points. When you approach the Bible saying, this is a book that is a partnership of human and divine recording the intrusion of the divine repeatedly. And I don't mean divine in some new age sense. I mean of God into the human history and all of the like echoes and reverberations that happened when that happened. And that the point of the Bible was it was written to them, about them and for them before it was ever about me. And it was written to churches, not just me as an individual. And it wasn't just written about how to save me, but how to be fully human in community. Then you just get a whole different set of answers. Does that make sense? And so part of what we try to do is we try to be curious and say, listen, we were all taught the same things and hallelujah, that brought us here, right? The accept Jesus or burn in hell, I accepted that over and over and over 500 times at camp. (laughs) But it's like when you go into a national park and you're at the gift store and you're seeing the pictures of the park and then you step out and see the reality. Ah, so all of this talk of deconstructing, ah, I think that's missing the point. So many of us realize we've just settled for the gift shop Jesus and we're now stepping in to Yellowstone and going, oh my word, this is so much more compelling than we could have ever imagined. And our repentance then isn't to sit in judgment over those who are still missing, but to then further explore and excavate our own hearts, to look for the dynamics of where I'm still held captive to that way of thinking, and I'm missing the fullness of our inheritance in Jesus. So that's why we do the things that we do, and that's why you are so gracious in suffering through so much text, because we're not just applying it to our lives, we're reframing the way we see the whole world. Does that make sense? We're world building. So you guys are amazing. And what a phenomenal, phenomenal question. Um, Let me pray. And and here's what we're going to do. Man, I just, I am very joyful and very emotional by this. I cannot tell you what a delight it is to be a part of a community that permits this. So thank you. Our job is to not just sit intellectually and stew, but to respond. And so we create just a place to do that. And you're more than willing to get up and walk around the room. Today, we're gonna add something. We're gonna have people um, next to the, the stations who have prayer tags who are there to pray, just in these two back here. Because there's something about writing prayers down, which is great, but there are some prayers that need somebody to see them and someone to speak them. And we wanna be that too. So we're gonna open up the room for you. And um, the Lord's Supper is there for everybody. And let's take the Lord's Supper today as if we were walking through the gift shop into the park. You know, God, this isn't just about my individual salvation. This is me saying yes to an, an entire reorientation of human life. And I'm hard hearted and I'm like the disciples, I'm not compassionate, but I know that I'll get there because of your relentless, relentless grace. And so I just volunteer for that journey.
So Jesus, we bless you and we love you. And I'm so, I'm so profoundly grateful for your mercy. Lord, I have been a purveyor of and a victim of the Christianity that has hurt so many people. And God, we wanna walk well and represent you well. Lord, we wanna be whole. We wanna grow to be able to forgive, to be able to walk humbly, to be able to be generous, all those things. And we need your help. So God, would you just continually reorient us around the vision of Jesus in these pages? Not just back then, but the Jesus that is living and active now and at work in our midst. Help us to see and recognize his work. So we love you and we now just worship you.